You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, this is a great honor to uh, be able to preach here at the University Presbyterian Church. I spent 19 years as senior pastor here, you know, but I was the youth pastor before that. And, and so today it was uh, such a reunion time after the first service seeing uh, many who were in my college group and high school group when, uh, when I was here first, 1956 to 1964. But then uh, to have a uh, chance to reunion with so many of you and just to thank God for you and what's happening here, uh, it's just been a joy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he was 30 years old, wrote a letter to a friend. And in the letter, he said this, and he wrote the letter in 1936, just uh, uh, 30 years old when he, wrote it, when, uh, when he wrote it. Then something happened, something that has changed and transformed my life to the present day. For the first time, I discovered the Bible. Since then, everything has changed. I have felt this plainly. And so have other people around me. It was a great liberation. That's what he wrote at age 30, uh, telling about uh, what had happened in his life, probably in his graduate years at the, at the university just before. In 1936, uh, uh, actually he is very much involved in discovering the Bible in a new way because this is the very year he wrote his commentary on the, ten, on the Sermon on the Mount, The Cost of Discipleship. The Bible is such an old book. It's such a book filled with traditions. How could reading that book have such a transforming effect? He said it transformed me. How? Well, because when you read that book, you meet... Uh, you meet Jesus of Nazareth. He is at the core, the heart of that book. The New Testament in witness and the Old Testament by expectation. When you read the Psalms and you read the law and you read the prophets and you read the New Testament, you run up into and you meet Jesus of Nazareth. And he wins your respect. It happens over and over again. When people watch him and see what he does, what he, how he relates to people, and the love he shows. In fact, it's his love that won Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In fact, he called that love the costly grace of Jesus Christ, and it won him. Well, in uh, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord Jesus Christ describes and charts out the course of his ministry which is what's in that book, the New Testament narrative of his life. And in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. By the way, the word abolish here is kataluso, means to turn loose or to throw away. It's the word for throw away or dismantle. I have not come to dismantle, to throw away the law, the, the ancient law, or the, the covenant of the law, or the prophets. Think not 
that I have come to do that. You know, that makes Jesus different than an awful lot of religious and political leaders. A lot of leaders of the new religious movements want to be sure that they're doing all new stuff and they're not going to depend on anything in the past. And they sort of become anti-traditional. That's not Jesus Christ. He makes that very clear in the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's the, the document that first won Bonhoeffer was the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish, to dismantle the law, to throw it away, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That is the way our Lord charted out his course and his goal in ministry. A little later in the ministry of our Lord, actually, this is at the beginning, and during the Tuesday of Holy Week, uh, we have an amazing encounter with Pharisees. Pharisees uh, struggle with Jesus, especially over his handling of the law. And so in this wonderful text in Matthew 22, on the Tuesday of Holy Week, this happened. A lawyer, a Pharisee, who was a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. That's the interpretation of Matthew. There was an attempt to tempt Jesus by asking this question. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Now, we know that the Pharisees were very much focused on the, uh, on the fourth commandment, on the keeping of the Sabbath. And they argued a great number of times with Jesus about the, the proper keeping of the Sabbath. Is that what he has in mind? We don't know. He just says, teacher, he asks the question, which of the commandments in the law is the greatest? And then Jesus answered. Here's his answer. This is a very famous answer. He answers by quoting two pet texts from the Old Testament. First, Deuteronomy 6, 5, and then Leviticus. He, he combines those two texts to answer the question uh, of this lawyer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And a second is like it. And that's from Leviticus, the expansion of the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus isn't finished. He has one more sentence. On these two commandments, that's why we call them the greatest commandments, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. Everything in the history of the past, in the tradition, in the law and the prophets is fulfilled in these two, and they all hang from this. This is what gives them meaning. So this is a very major statement by Jesus Christ. I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about the greatest commandment, the commandment to love. Our Lord himself in John, uh, the 15th chapter of John, also on Holy Week, he said this to his disciples, this is my commandment, see, the same commandment. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Notice, his love is prior. As I have loved you, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So this is the great commandment. I want us to reflect on that today. But it's interesting, in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord had to face up to a question. Because the question that, it, it, that follows this commandment is, but who is my neighbor? 
And we know that that, again, is a question throughout the ministry of our Lord. Who is the neighbor? Uh, and are there boundaries that boundary that neighbor that you should love? Are there political boundaries? Are there nationalist national boundaries? Is it tribal? So that uh, that other tribe, you don't have to love them. It's a good, huge question that's always hounded our Lord throughout his ministry. He taught several parables about that to answer that question. Who is my neighbor? And what about neighbors that are against me? What about neighbors that that are harmful toward me? What about them? What do I owe to them? It's interesting, isn't it, that right after our Lord says in Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, I have not come to abolish, to dismantle the law. I've come to fulfill it. Almost about three or four sentences later, he says this, because he takes on various traditions of the Jews. And he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. Okay, there it is. And hate your enemy. Now, by the way, that's nowhere in the Old Testament law. There's nowhere, no law in the Old Testament says hate your enemy. But is the tradition, there is a tradition because uh, racism has sort of built up within, uh, within Israel by the time of the first century. And tribalism had built up to where uh, there was no sense of obligation to the person outside of that boundary. So he says, you have a tradition. Now, this doesn't have to be a good tradition. It's a toxic one, but you have it. It is, uh, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, now our Lord is going to interpret the law. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he follows that by saying, because you have a loving father and you're his child. Because of God's love, you can Love your enemy and pray for your enemy. Uh, okay. Uh, that's what our Lord says in answer to that hounding question. What do I do with my neighbor? Who is the neighbor that I need to love? And what is that love all about? And now I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans. And, you know, it's funny. When I came to the church today, I said, oh, I want to turn, I want the people to turn to page 923. That's the, in my text that I've been preaching from for the last, when I went to National Presbyterian Church, I wanted to preach from the same Bible that was in the pews. And the Bible that was in the pews at National Presbyterian Church, the new RSV. And I, today when I came here, I said, I'll just check to see if the page number is the same in your Bible. It's the same number. Isn't that great? I just love that. And, uh, I want you to open up to it right now because I'm going to do a Bible study with you right now in a great text from St. Paul where he actually uh, helps to explain what Jesus just taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And he does it in a wonderful way and helps us to understand our Lord's teaching. Now Paul playing the role of our teacher in, Matt, in now Romans 12, that's page 923, yeah, I'll give you time so you can find it. And uh, don't mark in, your, in, the, in the Pew Bibles, but you can make marks in, your, in notes that you maybe want to keep. Because here's how it starts, this text, the great text. It starts out, let love be genuine. Let love be real. He's talking about the love that comes from God in our lives. Let it be real. And then he does three things that you can't necessarily tell easily from the way the text is written in the, in the new RSV. But he does an interesting thing after saying that. Let love be real. And then he uses 
one of the uh, biblical words for love, filial, and then uses it three different ways to show you three different ways to love. And he does that at the beginning of this text. The first filial is, is a famous one to us because a city has been named after it, Philadelphia. That is filial love of brothers and sisters. And that's the, what Philadelphia is, the city of brotherly love. So that's the first filial. He uses the filial three times in this first paragraph. Here's the first use, filial adelpha. In other words, love of brothers and sisters. And that has been thought of in the, in the first century church to refer to the love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Those that you've discovered, who have discovered his love that you now are in fellowship with. It's a fellowship word. Filial love of the brothers and sisters. So that's the first word. Then a second one follows it. Filial storge. Now, that word storge will not be so familiar to you as Adelphi, brothers and sisters, because the word storge is used only rarely. Uh, if, you, uh, if you bought C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, though, you, he has a whole section on it because he de devotes a lot of time to storge, because storge is the Greek word for the love of your own flesh. The love of your own family is used almost exclusively in the Greek language to refer to mothers and children, fathers and sons within the family or in the animal kingdom, the mother tiger for the baby tiger, the love that's instinctive love for your flesh, for the extension of who you are. Okay, that's the second kind of love. The first kind of love is filial Adelphus, the love of the brothers and sisters in Christ, the love of the fellowship. The second kind of love is the love of yourself. Notice, our, Paul is doing a commentary on what Jesus said. This is the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. But what does the as yourself refer to? That is filial storge, the love of your flesh. So that when you, it's so there is a sense of being tribal there. It's tribal, the love of your tribe, the love of who you are and have an extension of yourself, filial storge. And Paul is saying that also is in God's plan. You need to love brothers and sisters generally in the fellowship, and you need to also love the ones that are closest to you, your family, those right in your inner circle. By the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord does the same thing when he talks to the fathers. He says, fathers, even though you're sinful, if your son were to ask for bread, you would not give him a rock. And if your son or daughter was to ask for a fish, you would not give him a snake. Even though you're evil, you will give good gifts to your children. You owe that to your children. He says, even if you're sinful, you will do that right. And then he says, how much more God will give us what we ask for because uh, uh, he's not sinful. He is, he is righteous. But so Paul now is comment, commenting on our Lord's own statement. You should love your children. You should love the people who closest to you, your tribe. It's not, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not tribalism. That's not bad. That's not toxic, like hating your enemy. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then one more filio. And this one, unfortunately, the Revised Standard Version ruins the translation of. 
and I'm sorry about that. That's why I have to do this Bible study with you. The third filio, Paul puts the three together. Filio Adelphi, the love of brothers and sisters. Filio Storge. By the way, after the first service, I had a boy come up to me with his family and said, this is my Storge. He said it so. He heard my sermon, and he was only 10 years old. I love it. Uh, Filio Storge. The third word is Filio Zeno. Now, that may be a surprise to you. What is Zeno? You don't necessarily know that Greek word unless you've heard somebody talk about another human being being xenophobic. A xenophobic person is a person afraid of foreigners. Xenophobic. And so now that word is used, though, with, with phileo. You shall have phileo, xeno, the love of foreigners, the love of the stranger, the love of the person that you don't know well, the love of the person that's not in your tribe. So then notice what Paul has done. He's immediately gone trans-tribal. We don't have tribalism in Christianity. We're not supposed to because of these three loves that he puts in the very beginning of chapter, of chapter 9. Filio Adelphi, that's easy. Filio Storge, that's wonderful. We love that, especially if, if we're in the family. We want to have our family treasured. And now, Filio Zeno. Do you know this is only, this word is used only twice in the New Testament? In this place and one other place. And that place is in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 13, we are given a warning, but also a promise, a warning from the writer of the Hebrews. Be careful to love foreigners, filio, zeno. Be sure you love foreigners because some have entertained angels unawares. That famous line, you may be entertaining an angel and angels won't look like you. They won't necessarily be your nationality. They won't necessarily be easily recognized. So the writer of the Hebrews says, be sure you love foreigners. Be sure you love the person outside your tribe. Some have entertained angels unawares. Well, that's how Paul begins chapter 9, chapter 12. Now he goes on and, and talks about the hard part. Bless, this is now verse 14. This is a great chapter here, a great paragraph. He's going to navigate what love is all about. He's going to help us understand the Sermon on the Mount love that one Bonhoeffer that wins us to Christ. We're one to Christ because of his love. And now Paul is going to help us to understand and navigate what love is all about. Bless those who persecute you. Uh, bless them. Do not curse them. You know, the, curse, the word curse is the grimmest word in the Old and New both in Hebrew and in Greek. Curse means literally nullify, nullify, to nullify another person. Uh, bless them, don't nullify. Even now, you're persecutors. And it's a tough time when Paul writes this letter because Nero is the emperor and there's a lot of persecution of Christians going on. And a lot of people are being persecuted. Being, the word persecute means to be run down. And there are people who are being run down. And maybe that's something you, you yourself may feel you experience. But now Paul is saying, bless those who persecute you. Uh, bless them. Don't curse them. Don't nullify them. Don't write them off. And then gives wonderful advice. 
It's an empathy advice. He now is going to teach us the love of empathy. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. That means don't have an overinflated view of yourself. But associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. It's good advice. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. But take thought what is noble in the sight of all. And if it's possible, so far as it depends on you. Notice, it's realistic. There is a time when you have to stand up in a way that uh, may be strong uh, and, and, and dangerous. But in the, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself. But leave room for the judgment of God. God is the judge. He is the one who can show vengeance. Because it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There is justice. And that's, leave it to God there to do the vengeance. Know if your enemy is hungry, feed him or them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, and now comes a very baffling sentence, which is baffling to most Western readers, but wouldn't be as baffling to a person that knew the book of Proverbs. Uh, for when you do this and do these kind things, like giving water and help, you heap coals of fire, uh, burning coals on their heads. I'm so sorry that almost all interpreters of the New Testament right across the boards, interpreted that sentence to mean this, that if you show kindness to someone, then they will, they will have tremendous guilt piled on them for the fact that they have been persecuting you. And that's how that text has been interpreted. Even in the new RSV, uh, the uh, expanded version of, the, of the, the commentary part says, it's probably a reference to shame put upon you if you are showing sinfulness when you're met with kindness. Uh, I don't agree with that at all. Because uh, when I wrote my own commentary on that, I, I'm so grateful that I read what Martin Luther wrote about that passage. Luther doesn't like that either. He said, I don't like the coals of fire being seen as, as an image of shame. And the reason is, and then Luther gave this great line, uh, if you are converted because of shame or fear, you will later hate your conversion. If you were converted to Christianity because you were afraid of hell, then you will later hate your conversion. Uh, you should be converted because of God's love, not because you're afraid of something. And that's from Luther. Well, and also they don't understand coals of fire. In the book of Proverbs 25, it says that uh, when you do kindness to someone, you give them coals of fire in their head. But think about what that means. If you were out in the, in the desert and you met a family that didn't have a fire and it's going to be night and they, they, would, they need to have a fire, even if you saw the television show uh, Survival, you know they've got to have a fire, even in the tropics. And they've got to have a fire. But did you notice some of those people trying to get flint and trying to start a fire and they can't do it? Uh, but how do you start a fire? If you, supposing your, your camp is established and you have fire, they don't have fire and night is coming. How do you give them fire? You give it by giving coals to them. Now, here's a question, 
a technical question. How do you carry coals? In the first century, there's a way of carrying coals in the Bedouin society, and that is on stone jars. Where are stone jars put? On the top of your head. They're insulated by heavy uh, clay at the bottom, and then you can put coals in it, and that will keep you from burning your head, and you can put ice water in it, and it won't uh, freeze your head. You, because it's insulated. And because of the ability to walk with erect and carry the coals, uh, that's why people in the Middle East have such wonderful posture. They've carried things on their head. And the weight then goes through the body so that they benefit from that too. But the coals on the head, according to the book of Proverbs, is a sign of grace. It's a sign of giving help to someone who needed help to get a fire going. You can't get a fire going by saying, oh, here's some coals, put it in a Safeway bag and carry it over to your... (laughs) You can't get it there, it'll burn up the bag. Or you can't carry it holding it to your stomach, it'll burn you up. But you could carry it on your head. Coals of fire in your head. So that is a positive passage, as Luther said. It's not meant to shame you, but to be thankful for kindness when you saw it. When you saw goodness, you're thankful for it. And notice the proof of it comes in the next line from St. Paul. I'll read the whole thing. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He's not talking about shame. He's talking about grace. And that's what our Lord is doing. And our Lord won Bonhoeffer. He won us because of grace. By the way, yesterday, David Brooks, who's one of my favorite correspondents uh, in the New York Times, and I get the New York Times, it was in yesterday's paper. Sometimes Seattle Times will pick up a David Brooks column. Maybe it'll be in there. But he quotes Pope Francis and his New Year's Eve homily. And I love what David Brooks, in quoting it, says. He said that the the Holy Father, Pope Francis, told us that the people who have the most influence on society are actually the normal folks through their normal everyday gestures being kind in public places. And then Brooks says, the Pope calls such people in a beautiful phrase, the artisans of the common good. They're just the artisans, the carpenters, the carriers of the common good. They did something good. And that goodness is more powerful than evil. And that's what Paul is saying our Lord is teaching. That's what won Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer wrote a book at that time in 1936. He wrote two books. He wrote, first of all, Cost of Discipleship. And then he also wrote the book Life Together. And he gives this great quotation uh, in Life Together uh, uh, that he also wrote. He said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The Old Testament day begins at evening and ends with the going down of the sun. It's the time of expectation, see? The day of the New Testament begins with the break of day and ends with the dawning of light in the next morning. It is the time of fulfillment. And then he writes this, at night, Christ was born. Just a week or so ago, we celebrated Christmas night. At night, Christ was born, a light in the darkness. Noonday turned to night 
when Christ suffered and died on the cross in our behalf. But in the dawn of Easter morning, Christ rose in victory from the grave. Goodness is stronger than, than wrongness. And our Lord said it in the Sermon on the Mount. St. Paul gave a commentary on it in Romans 12. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. Thank you that it prepares us for the Lord's Supper to, to receive this goodness from you and then to rejoice in it. In Christ's name, we, we, we pray and thank you for that. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.